Um, there we go. Turn on my voice. Before we get going, there is a tub of books. Some are already taken. But there's a gentleman I've been visiting in a nursing home, an Adventist, and he's now in a assisted living, but he wanted me to go to his home and pick up books. So uh, some were here Wednesday night and got some books, but there's some more left, and I said I'm going to bring them to church, and I know they'll be made of good use. They may be books you want to share with people, some that you maybe don't have, and you'd like to have them and use them for your own library and reading. But you're free to free. Okay? All right. Very good. Well, before we begin, I want to just do a little review or before we have our prayer. You know, we've spent the last few sermons, for me anyway, talking about the seven angels of Revelation 14. And you say, well, there's only six in Revelation 14, and we usually talk about the first three. You know, the three angels' messages. But there is a fourth angel, Revelation 18. And we talked about how that's the message of... Righteousness by faith. And by embracing that message of righteousness by faith, we're going to receive the latter, the latter rain. And that gives power to the three angels' messages, which then goes out to the whole world. So what we've ultimately been missing is that fourth angel, the experience of the fourth angel. But Revelation 14 also has three other angels. Those three angels that have to do with the resurrection. The first, the fifth angel, the resurrection of the just... And the last two angels, 6 and 7 in Revelation 14, dealing with the resurrection of those who are not saved. What we want to do now is just go back to Revelation 14, begin with verse 1. This chapter means everything to us. It is God's response to Revelation 13. Revelation 13 is two superpowers that take over the world and force worship. God's people persecuted. And if the Bible ended with Revelation 13, it'd look awfully bleak for us. But God has a response to Revelation 13, and that's Revelation 14. So Revelation 14 means everything to us because we're part of God's response to these two superpowers in the end of time that are going to take over the world in a political, religious way. And so God has a way in which he has a people so that we can bring people out of Babylon to become part of God's remnant church and be prepared for the soon return of Jesus Christ. So as we look at this verse, Revelation 14, 1, this is what we're going to spend most of our time with today. It is a very beautiful scene. And I looked and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having the Father's name written in their foreheads. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, the scenes of Revelation 13 are disturbing. We wish it wouldn't be happening, but we know it's the result of sin in our world. Sin coming to its full fruition, complete maturity. But Father, we want to be mature in Jesus Christ. We know that's the response, that we continue to grow and grow to become more and more like our loving Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Father, help us to look at this other scene, the scene that will cheer us up, that will bring light into our soul, that will go forth with great faith to see a work done not only in the world but in our own individual lives. And so, Father, we ask for the promise of the Holy Spirit to guide us in our study, and this we claim in the very precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So, if you turn open to your Bibles, I am going to be doing a PowerPoint here. But in Revelation 14, verse 1, we have this text, which is going to be most of our focus this morning. And I look, this is a new scene. He had been looking at something else, but now he's looking at something completely new. And he looked, and lo, behold, a lamb stood on Mount Zion. Praise God. And with him, 144,000, having the Father's name written in their foreheads. Now, as we look at this next slide, we cannot separate Revelation 13 from Revelation 14. Okay? John sees two completely different scenes. Notice how each chapter, again, opens up. Revelation 13, 1. I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, and he had the name of what? The name of blasphemy. 
Okay, that sounds like just the opposite of how he begins Revelation 14.1. Who's this first beast rising up out of the sea? Rome, the papacy, okay? So this vision in Revelation 13 is the papacy, and it has the name of blasphemy. But then look at that absolute contrast. I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and the 144,000 having the Father's name. These are completely two different scenes that we all have to look at. We have to see what John was showing. God wants us to see this. But one of the lessons we want to learn is we don't just want to talk about the beast, do we? You can't just focus on the beast. And this is why God gives us these beautiful scenes of heaven. Because it's these scenes of heaven that gives us courage. Because even though we know the beast powers are going to take over, but in the end, they what? They don't win. In the end, God's people are standing with Jesus, okay? Now, in Revelation 13, I call it the dragon chapter, okay? Because it's focusing on the results of Satan, who is the dragon, right? And his influence on the world, particularly these two superpowers. Notice what we have in Revelation 13, verse 2. And the dragon, which is Lucifer gave him the first beast, which is the papacy, his power, his seed, and great authority. Now, we know that the dragon could also represent pagan Rome, but it was Satan using pagan Rome to try to destroy who? The early church, right? Tried to destroy the early church physically. Did that work? No. The more Christians he persecuted, the more Christians there were now. Because they saw people standing for their faith. They realized these people really had a change of life. They had something they wanted. And so it realized, Satan realized that by using pagan Rome to persecute the church physically, it was counterproductive. The church just grew. So what he says, I've got to change my plan. I've got to get inside what? The church. Still persecute it physically, but I've got to destroy it doctrinally. I've got to destroy it from within inside. And that's where we get papal Rome takes over, okay? So we see the dragon associated with the first beast, but then in Revelation 13, 11, and I beheld another beast, another power, another nation, another political power coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, but what? He spake as a dragon. Oh, that's too bad. That's why I call it the dragon chapter, okay? And whatever's in this chapter, it's really the result of Satan's influence in this world. Because he's the one that gave the first beast his power, seed, and great authority. And he's the one that makes the second beast speak like a dragon. All we have to do is see what their behavior is to see what are the results of following Satan's plan and his ideas. Okay? And here's what we're going to see. So we know the dragon is Satan. Revelation 13, 9. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. But here's the influence of the dragon on the first beast of papacy. And he, this first beast, opened his mouth and what? Blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, them that dwell in heaven, and of course then he wars with the saints, and he overcomes them. That means many martyrs. That's the influence of Satan's way on the church of Rome and becoming the papacy. Okay? What's the influence of the dragon on the second beast? And he, the second beast, of which now the second beast speaking like a dragon, causes the earth to worship the first beast, to seize them that dwell on the earth, and that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark, and that eventually should be killed. Okay? Now, the reason I want to point this out is that um, Satan made an accusation against God. What is, what is, how does Satan present God to the world? As if he's a... He's a tyrant. Notice in the book, Great Controversy, page 500. By the misrepresentation of the character of God as he had practiced in heaven, causing him, God, to be regarded as a severe and tyrannical, obviously, God. Okay? Who really is the tyrant? Satan's actually a tyrant, isn't he? I mean, look at his influence on the first and second beast. He caused those powers to be tyrannical. Without any kind of mercy, right? But notice that influence. He's described as the dragon. His influence on the first beast and the second beast. And then after John sees this terrible chapter of Revelation 13, 
And imagine how, imagine putting yourself in John's shoes. If you had seen that, imagine how you'd feel, your emotions, your thoughts. And then all of a sudden, you see this scene. Would it change your thoughts? After you saw the dragon and his influence on these two superpowers, and you're like, oh, mercy, Father, may this never happen. I can't believe it. A church, this first beast, a professedly Christian institution, persecuting your people. And then a second one, starting off right, a beast with lamb-like horns, but eventually, again, persecuting your people. And he must have thought, oh, my, look at all this history, all this, this tragedy. But then he's shown a different scene. And imagine how he would feel differently when all of a sudden the scene completely changed and I looked, oh, finally, I looked and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having the Father's name written in their foreheads. So he goes by watching the dragon and his work to now seeing what? A lamb. That's quite different, isn't it? Satan is the dragon. He's really the tyrant. But our God is, a, is really a lamb. And a lamb is very self-sacrificing, very gentle. That's who our God is, isn't it? And that's how he deals with each one of us. And we need to make sure that we don't look at all the bad stuff in the world, right? We've got to take time, like John, or God showed John, we've got to take time to behold the lamb. That is so important for us because this is why the 144,000 are even able to stand is because of the is because of the lamb. Okay? And this is where we have to be careful because even within our own circles, we could wind up talking more about the beast than about the lamb. And we got to be careful about that. We do need to know about the beast. we got to find out what's going on in the world. How are things trending? How close are we? You know, the signs of the times. But at the same time, knowing who they are doesn't get me to heaven. What gets me to heaven is standing with the Lamb. What gets me to heaven is having God's name written in my forehead. That's what gets me to heaven. Okay? Now look at the use of God's name in these two different chapters. The first piece, he blasphemies whose name? God's name, doesn't he? Wow, what a difference. The one institution, the Church of Rome, blasphemies God's name. I know that sounds awfully strong, but then I didn't write this. But the 144,000, they don't blaspheme his name. They, They have it written on their foreheads. That's a real contrast, isn't it? And God wants us to see that. But now we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean, mean to have God's name? Notice this statement from Sons and Daughters of God, page 370. This name is the symbol which the apostle saw in vision and signifies a yielding of the mind to intelligent and loyal obedience to all of God's commandments. So, the first beast blasphemes his name, The second picture, the 144,000, have the name written on their forehead. So if I know what one is, I know what the other one is, right? If I know what it means to have God's name written on my forehead, then I know what it would also mean to blaspheme his name. It would be just the opposite, wouldn't it? So if it means to have his name written here on your forehead, to keep God's commandments in how way? In what kind of way? In an intelligent and loyal way. That means to blaspheme his name would be to change his commandments, to not keep his commandments, right? That's how we would blaspheme his name, to think that we could change it. But if we're going to make it to heaven, if we're going to strive to be amongst those 144,000, we've got to be standing with the Lamb, meaning we've got to be growing in our self-sacrificing Love in our own life, because that's what a lamb is. But at the same time, have those commandments written on our forehead that we keep them intelligently and in a loyal way. Now, in an upcoming sermon, I want to talk more about mental health and how the name's written in our forehead. Because there's a key word here, and it means intelligent. 
to intelligently keep God's commandments. It means that God has a design, God has a way in which we are to dig deeper into which each commandment means and to know intellectually what we're doing. What does it really mean to keep the first commandment and have it written in my forehead? What does it really mean, thou shalt not bear false witness? Does it mean not just tell a lie? Or does it mean more than that? Would it also include always telling the truth, even when it's not popular? What if I know something's true, but I don't want to say because I'll be misunderstood or perhaps somebody won't like me? Could it include that? Because in the end of time, the 144,000, they're going to tell the truth even though it will bring what? Persecution. Because they want that commandment written in their forehead. And they will always, always tell the truth. They'll never, ever give a false impression. Now, you and I know that's impossible for us to do by ourselves, but everything's possible with, with God. He has to write them, but we've got to be willing to have them written. But that takes using our intelligence and our loyalty to God. Your faithfulness to God. That means every day. It was like Jerome shared in Sabbath school, the idea of meditating upon God's Word. Meditating upon these commandments. Not to be a legalist, but because you want them written. You really want to know. You're really striving. Let's see a little bit more what this means to have the name written on our foreheads. This is from Councils on Stewardship 46. Unless the name of God is written in your foreheads, written there because God is the... He's the center of your thoughts. You know, Dave was sharing something at Sabbath school, and did you share that during in-between services too? Uh, just during Sabbath Okay. When God becomes the center of our thoughts, you think different. You feel different. And those worldly thoughts begin to dissipate because you're willing to engage in the battle with the mind to keep your mind stayed upon God. That takes effort. Because if you don't put in the effort, what's going to happen to your thoughts? They're going to be all over the place. Whatever's around you. I'm telling you, it's a battle. To keep your mind centered on God in a fallen world. You go to the grocery store, you go there, you turn on the radio, whatever. You're being bombarded with the possibility of having thoughts that are contrary to God. And you, because you're striving to be amongst these people, which we haven't even described it, really. And that's part of the beauty of studying these first five verses. Is we're all to strive to be amongst them. We want to be the people who make God the center of our thoughts. And to make them the center of our thoughts is what it's going to take to have those commandments written in our forehead. That he's always first and most and best. When you wake up in the morning, your first thoughts aren't of earthly things, but of heavenly things. Because if you you allow the devil to take your morning, he's pretty much taking your day. If you begin your thoughts with positive, heavenly thoughts, are you more likely to have those thoughts throughout the day? Will you be able to face with greater strength and perseverance countering thoughts throughout the day? Starting off right, taking the first step is the beginning of every journey. It happens every day. The spiritual journey, every day. The first step, those first moments. Putting God first. The center of your thoughts. We can do that. We can do that, but it's important to do it. Okay? Let's look at some other statements about having the name written on our foreheads. This is from Review and Herald, March 19th, 1889. John saw a lamb on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads, they bore the signet of heaven. They reflected the image of God. They were full of light and the glory of the Holy One. Now, associated with the name on the forehead is the idea of a signet. A signet was like a, a king's ring 
that if he didn't want to write his name, he just had to put a seal from his ring. So you want God's signet from his ring on your forehead. What's his signet? What's on his ring? It's going to be his commandments. Because it's an expression of who he is. And you say, Father, impress that ring, your, your kingly ring. You're my king. I'm your servant. I want to be a citizen of heaven. Impress that signet ring on my forehead. And what does that mean? It says they reflect the image of God. Because isn't that what's going to happen? If we allow God to write his commandments on our hearts and our minds, will we not then begin to reflect who he is? I mean, imagine a life where you would never lie. Are you reflecting the image of Jesus? Imagine a life where you would never steal. You'd never take advantage of a person. Would you begin to reflect the image of Jesus? Absolutely. You take every one of these Ten Commandments, and each one of them makes you more like Jesus. That's its purpose. The purpose of the commandments isn't to earn salvation. You can't earn it. It's a gift. Yet, we keep them because we want to have the image of God in our life. We want to please Him. You know, one of the things that we're striving to be is that when God had a, a, before the fall of Lucifer, he had 100% of the angels. Is that right? How many did he lose? He lost a third. So every day, God could look out at his angels and how many are missing? How do you think he feels? A lot of sorrow there, isn't it? He misses a third of those angels. They're not there anymore. Who replaces them? We do. And we're going to talk more about that when it comes to 144,000. We replace them. You want to be saved. You want to be there in heaven because you don't want God to look at an empty, a third of a heaven. You want it filled again to give him that praise that he deserves to have. But to bear the signet of heaven is to reflect his image. And when you begin to Reflect his image, you're full of what? Light. And I think that's what Dave's talking about. The idea of focusing on his word and you're feeling different. You lose track of time because you're getting full of light. You can't think of anything else. No, no. <laughs> you're getting full of light. And that light, the more light you have, changes what you can see. You know, the Bible says the word of God is a lamp unto my feet. All right? A light unto my path. And that actually, in ancient times, the Jewish people used to put little candles on the end of their shoes for at night so they could walk and see where they're going. Thy word is a lamp under my feet. And so the word is like a lamp under my feet so I can see where I'm going in a dark world. Because if I don't have the word, I can't see. And the more I have of the Word, the more I can see. You know, people who don't study the Bible don't know what they're missing because they can't see. It's when we study the Word that we begin to see what we've been missing. But we realize there's more. And so we want more light, more light. Let's look at some more. This is from Manuscript 13, 1888. This is after she quotes Revelation 14, 1 through 3. Why were they, talking of the 144,000, so specially singled out? Because they had to stand with a wonderful truth right before the whole world and receive their opposition. And while receiving their opposition, they were to remember that they were sons and daughters of God, that they must have Christ formed within them the hope of glory. Now, if you open your Bibles, and let me ask you this question. Are the 144,000 the only ones that are saved? No. So when you look at Revelation chapter 7, and verse 9, now the 144,000 is a numbered group. There is a 144,000, 12 from each tribe. But notice in verse 9, And after this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all the nations and kindreds and people and tongues 
stood before the throne, which means they were saved, right? And before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hand. So there's the 144,000, which is a special group. But there's also, and that's a numbered group, but there's also a what? Innumerable group, of which there's no number. Are they saved too? Absolutely. They got their white robes. They'll be able to live with God and Jesus forever. But there's something different about this 144,000, which is only sermon number one on it today. Okay, And even she says, why were they so specially singled out? Why is there actually a couple chapters or portions of a chapter only talking about this group of Christians? Is that right? They are specifically singled out. Because they wind up having to stand with a wonderful truth. What do you think that wonderful truth is? In the end of time, they have to stand with a wonderful truth in great opposition. And they stand with that truth with great opposition. But what they remember and what gives them strength is that they're what? Sons and daughters of God. And they remember that even though they know who the beast is and the mark of the beast, they have to remember what? That they must have Christ from within. That's the key. Being amongst 144,000 isn't getting all the right answers on Revelation 13. Who's the beast? What's the mark of the beast? It's part of it. Being part of the 144,000 is that unique experience to stand against all this opposition. But always remembering, you're a son and daughter of God. And what you remember is that Christ, above everything else, has to be formed within you. That's what gives you the strength. That's your drive. That's what you hunger for more than anything else in the world. Is to have Christ form within you. Which means that every day you're going to spend time with who? With Jesus. And that's why you see them standing on Mount Zion with the, with the Lamb. In fact, in, later on in the chapter, they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Christ means that much to them. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Yes, there's a beast. But what do they mostly think about? They mostly think about Jesus. But in thinking and becoming more like Jesus, they will tell people about the beast. Because Jesus would. In fact, Jesus is the one who showed this to John. Those who have and therefore has the seal of the infinite God will regard the world and its attractions as subordinate to eternal interests. Isn't that a true statement? So part, I think, what Dave is sharing, what Jerome shared about you know, meditation upon the Word, is that when we do that, we're going to have more of an interest in what? Eternal things. And less of an interest in worldly things. Day by day. doesn't happen all at once, but you're building. You're going in the right direction. And in that direction, you're realizing, you know, I used to love this worldly thing, but I don't really care about it anymore. I didn't really used to study my Bible, but now I find myself studying. I didn't used to pray that much, and now I'm praying more. I didn't used to really witness much, but I'm, I really want to witness. I really want to tell people about Jesus. What's happening to you? You're becoming more like Jesus. You're gaining more of the Spirit. God's law is being written more on your forehead. So it should be. And for the 144,000, it just sounds like they've been doing it longer than anybody else. And they've been doing it with their whole heart to the point they could face all the opposition the world wants to throw at them. And they're still going to stand because it doesn't matter. Because after all, they're sons and daughters of God. Do you know how big our father is? And I'm not looking like at height, like 6'2 or anything, but 
But how big is this universe that he controls? If I had a cup right here, and this cup represented our solar system, that's pretty far, isn't it? I mean, it's 93 million miles from the sun to earth. Imagine how far it is from the sun to Pluto. And so in this cup, if the sun was in the center and Pluto was the rim of the cup, how big is the Milky Way galaxy? Just the Milky Way, the size of the United States. Do you realize that if this was our solar system, you couldn't even see the sun with your naked eye? You couldn't see planet Earth. You'd have to get a microscope to see planet Earth. And the Milky Way would be the rest of the United States. And that's just the Milky Way. There's billions of other galaxies. Billions of galaxies away. We are so small, but our Father is <laughs> so big, my friend. And in the end, and this is why it's so important that that special truth that they take a stand for, which is the Sabbath, points to who? The Creator. And you realize how small man is and how big your father is of whom you are a son and daughter. You know, friends, that's an important picture to have. And Revelation 14, one's an important picture that when these two beasts take over and it looks like they win, it's not the last word. They're going to lose. God's people are the ones going to be standing with the lamb on Mount Zion. And we need to continue to remember that. But as we strive to have God's law written in our minds, to have his name, we have to be moving in a direction where we're not becoming more worldly, we're becoming more spiritual. And the world is falling behind. Okay? Fair enough? Now, the devil knows what this battle's over. Look what he's warring against. And the dragon was wroth with the woman went to make war with a remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, most of the evangelical world thinks the war's over what? Yeah, some computer chip on your hand, a military battle in the Middle East. Well, the devil knows that's not what it's over. The devil knows it's over the commandments. God's looking for people to have his commandments written in their forehead. And the devil is trying to war against everyone who's trying to keep them. The devil's going to try to keep you from having the commandments written in your forehead. And you have to fight against that. I'm telling you, the devil's going to try to get you to be so busy that you don't have any time for Jesus. You don't have time to pray. You don't have time to study your Bible. He'll get you try to get you interested in worldly things, crowd out in spiritual things. Anything he could possibly do to dampen your ambition to give glory to God. To think mostly of yourself. And we've got to fight against that. But that's part of that, that fallen nature in us. You know the, the ultimate main problem with our fallen nature? And this was the problem with Lucifer. This is really what was the main problem with him. He didn't want God to tell him what to do. He wanted to be God. And that's the main problem with a fallen nature. It says it right there in the Bible. Romans. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Verse 6 and 7. For to be carnally minded, which is the mind we're born with, right? The carnal mind, the natural mind, is what? It's death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is what? Enmity against God, for it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. You see, unless we're born again... We will always have a mind that will resist even God controlling our lives. A life where we would never choose to be subjected to a law, 
even of God's law. But when we're born of the Spirit, born again, have now a spiritual mind, we realize that God's love isn't, God's law isn't against us. God's law is trying to help me to become more loving. Because if I don't covet, and I don't kill, and I don't steal, and I don't bear false witness, it's because I love my fellow man. It's not a means of earning anything. The greatest expression of love you could ever give to the human family is to keep all of God's Ten Commandments. That would make you the most loving person on earth, which would be the same as having the very nature and spirit of Jesus. They're all one and the same. And the Bible says there's going to be a people who are going to have their names written. Or have the commandments written on our forehead. It says here in Revelation 14, 12. Here's the patience of the saints. Here they are. You can look at them. They're right there. They keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. It's going to happen, friends. Now, the beautiful scene in verse 1. The 144,000 stand with the Lamb and have the Father's name. What does that mean? You look at verse 1. Standing with Jesus, the Lamb, having the name of the Father in your forehead means this. They stand with Jesus, a self-sacrificing one. And that makes them more what? Self-sacrificing, more loving. At the same time, it means they're keeping the Father's commandments. And so have you ever heard anyone say, you don't have to keep the commandments, just be more loving? Have anybody said that to you? Well, that's, that's a contradiction. You can't break the commandments and be more loving. Because if you're breaking the commandments, you're actually less loving. The only way to be 100% loving is to keep 100% of those Ten Commandments. Because that's what it is. Jesus answered the, the lawyer. What are the great commandments? Love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and your neighbors yourself. That's what the law is all about. <clears throat> so, let's go back to verse 1. And I looked and lo, a lamb. This isn't the first time we're told to look at the lamb. When's the first time? Let's look at John, John the Baptist. The next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. What's Jesus just about ready to become? A lamb. Not a priest, not a king, but a lamb. The first time we're told to look and behold Jesus as a lamb is when he's just about ready to be a lamb. But look at this next time we're told to behold the lamb. It's found in Revelation Chapter 5, verse 6. And I beheld, and lo, behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as if it had been slain. Where's Jesus in this verse? Is he on earth? No, he's in the heavenly sanctuary, but he's still seen as a, as a lamb. When he was on planet earth in his ministry, he looked like a, a lamb. When he's a priest in the heavenly sanctuary, he's a, he's a lamb. Revelation 14.1, I looked and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion and with them 144,000 having a father's name written in their foreheads. When is this taking place? Jesus is now what? See, a lamb? A priest? He's a king. He's now king of kings, isn't he? He's already taken off his priestly robes. Anytime you look at Jesus, you always see him as a... As a lamb. And this is very important, my friends. You know, a third of the Gospels is about the last week of Jesus' life. Ellen White says, contemplate the life of Christ, especially the, the closing scenes. Spend a thoughtful hour contemplating those closing scenes because that is the greatest expression of, of love. So, in Revelation 5, 6, when he saw a lamb as if it had been slain, that means Jesus already had been crucified, but as he looked at the lamb, he saw some evidence that it had been slain. What did he see? He saw the nail prints in Jesus' hands. Do you know he will bear that for forever? That throughout eternity, even as our king, we'll see him as the lamb. The one who who died for us. You know, every day, we should be rehearsing that Jesus has, He died for me. 
But you know, the devil's going to try to get you not to behold that picture. Because whatever you behold is what you begin to love. And if you keep seeing Jesus as a lamb, what's going to happen? You're going to love him more. Even when you see him as your high priest in heaven right now, you still see him as a lamb. Your high priest who died for you. And throughout eternity as our king, he'll be our king who died for us. I mean, that'd be like, and it's not the same, but imagine if we had a president who died for us. Would you love your president more if he died for you? And so this is what binds us to Christ for eternity. Now, I want to kind of close with this, and I know we're getting a little late here. But I want to see another picture of this 144,000. We mostly have really been talking about who? The Lamb. Okay? But they had the Father's name. But notice what else is happens in this verse. In Revelation 14, 1, it talks about how they're seen with Jesus on Mount Zion. Look at Psalm 48, 2. Beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion, the sides of the north, the city of the great king. So in Jerusalem, there would have been a north-south-east side of the of Jerusalem, right? On the north side is where most of the king's palace and his administrative type things he did. So the north side would be really more where the authority was. Does, it ring, does it, the phrase sides of the north ring a bell to any other verse? Where did Lucifer want to reside? Isaiah 14. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? For thou hast said in thy heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will be like the most high. I'm suspecting that the sides of the north is where the son and the father met in their wonderful council of peace. When they make decisions about the universe as a whole. And Lucifer wanted to be there in the sides of the north. He wanted to be like the most high. Now, what I'm going to submit to you is that we're going to look at a few verses here, and it's very clear to me that the 144,000 are with God on Mount Zion, right? With the Lamb on Mount Zion, which means the 144,000 are going to be the ones closest to the throne of God. And the redeemed are going to replace who? The fallen angels, which also includes Lucifer himself who had the highest position. Okay? I've been trying to prove this point, but I haven't found quite that one statement yet. But I would suspect, because there's enough verses and statements, that the 144,000 of all the saints are the one closest to the throne of God. Now, will they themselves replace some of those higher angels that left? I'm not saying they're going to take Lucifer's place. I don't know. That's... I don't know what God's going to do with that position. But all of us wind up replacing the fallen angels. And there were fallen angels at every order of angels, from the lowest to the highest. So let's look at some of these statements. Fair enough? And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast. This is talking about the 144,000 in Revelation 15. And over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God, and they sang a new song. This is 144,000. The sea of glass is the sea of glass, the pavement that leads up to the throne of God. Isn't that some? That's got to be absolutely beautiful. Throne of God, sea of glass, 144,000 with their harps on the sea of glass. Okay? Now, this statement from Great Controversy. Oh, this to me is an exciting verse or statement. With the Lamb upon Mount Zion, having the harps of God. Who are we talking about? The 144,000. They stand, talking of the 144,000. The 140 and 4,000 that were redeemed from among men. And there is heard as the sound of many waters and as the sound of a great thunder. Notice what it says next. It doesn't say it was God's voice, even though God's voice is like a great thunder, and Jesus' voice is like many waters. The Bible does talk about that. But notice what it says here. 
And there is heard, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of a great thunder, the voice of harpers harping with the harps. What's making the sound of many waters here? The 144,000 harping with their harps. Okay? We'll go a little further. Revelation 14, 2, the next verse. I heard a voice from heaven as a voice of many waters and as a voice of a great thunder and I heard the voice of harpers harping with the harps. Okay? So, what we're going to look in there next is that the word thunder is usually associated with what? God and God's throne. Okay? And so if the harpers, the 144,000 are in their voice and are harping with their hearts is like thunder and like many waters, they're playing awfully close to what? The throne itself. Okay? To me, that's pretty exciting. Out of the throne proceeded lightnings. Out of the throne, this is where thunders comes in. Out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. This is all near what? God's throne. And beheld, and the glory of God of Israel came from the way of the east, and his voice was like a noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. So when God speaks, something's shining, right? It's not like noisy, but it's authority. It's, it's, it's healing. It's shining. It's, so, in Revelation 14, 3, it says, And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne. Now notice this. Who's it talking about? 144,000. And they, the 144,000, notice who they're singing to. And they sung, as it were, a new song before... you imagine being part of that group? And you're singing a song and you're playing your harps before the very throne of God. So he's before the throne and before the... Where are the four beasts? Around the throne of God. And the elders, the 24 elders, where are they? Around the throne of God. That's who they're playing to. The 144,000 have this special experience that they're going to sing an entirely new song before God himself. They're going to sing this new song playing their harps before God and before the four living creatures and the 24 elders. Now, I know there's difference of opinions, but there's the one thought that the 24 elders represent the leaders of the other worlds, the unfallen worlds. Imagine the leaders of the unfallen worlds with the twenty, with the four living creatures and God himself on the throne and the 144,000 are singing a song from their experience. That God wants to listen to this. And the four living creatures and the leaders of all these unfallen worlds. How many? I mean, it's amazing. What a privilege. And it just gives us a little deeper picture. Who are these people? I haven't said which, whether the number's literal or symbolic. I'm just trying to look at their experience. Something that God wanted us to see. Because after chapter 13, it looks pretty bleak. But don't worry about 13. Preach 13. Warn the world of 13. But you've got to keep your focus and your hope in 14. And say, you know, those beasts aren't going to take away my opportunity to play a harp before God. And to sing. So, the song of their experience. They sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. It's the song of their experience. And it says in Psalm 98.1, Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Who do you sing to? Sing unto the Lord a new song. For he hath done marvelous things. For who? For us. His right hand and his holy arm hath gotten him the victory. We wind up singing a new song because we've experienced whose power? God's power. Yeah, you don't sing songs about what you did without Him. You sing a new song because what He enabled you to do and for you to become. This is what gives us a new experience. 
And this is what the fourth angel is all about. Because in 1888, we talked a little bit about that. In 1888, that message is, what's the relationship between the beautiful, sinless life of Jesus and those beautiful Ten Commandments? And the Jews believed in the Ten Commandments, but they rejected they rejected Jesus, so they couldn't understand the relationship between the two. We want to understand, Father, what's the relationship between Jesus and his sinless life and these beautiful Ten Commandments? And the Jews couldn't understand it because they rejected Jesus. And mostly within the evangelical world, they believe in a sinless Jesus, but have rejected his Ten Commandments. And so again, it's not possible to understand the relationship between the two. But leading up to 1888, finally God had a church called the Seventh-day Adventist Church who believed in the sinless life of Jesus and the Ten Commandments. But that doesn't mean you understand the relationship between the two. Just because you believe in two things doesn't mean you understand how they relate together. And this was the message of 1888. This was the fourth angel's message. What is that relationship? And the message was, you can have all the law written in your hearts and the minds, but you can only get from one place. It only comes by having Jesus formed within you. You can't get it from the law itself because the law can only tell you what's righteous. But the law can't give you righteousness and you can't make yourself righteous. The only way you could possibly have righteousness, they have that law, that name written in your foreheads, is if you allow the Holy Spirit to exact, do exactly what He's capable of doing. His arm's not short that He can't do this. It's all a matter whether we allow Him to do it. And when I hang on to sin, I'm preventing him from writing that law on my forehead. I'm preventing him from putting that signet right there that will bring me more joy and light and the image of God. But if I allow him and I say, you know, I'm helpless. I can't do this. You know, by saying that, I just gained a victory. Because now, I don't have to try to do it by myself. I've fallen on my face too many times. I've tried. And what I need to know now is that He's able. 144,000 know that. The 144,000 aren't the ones who tried harder. They're the ones who realized how weak they were. Is that possible for all of us to see how weak we are? No one has an advantage there. I mean, even Paul would say, I'm the chief of... That was a victory. I'm the worst sinner in the world. That's a victory. The weakest person in the world. That's a victory. And that's the problem with Laodicea. We think we're, yeah, we're kind of good. Yeah, I'm a pretty good person. I pray enough. Really? Is that going to give me the name of the Father on my forehead? It's when I finally realize and I'm broken on the rock, I can't do this. But I want to do it. I want to do it because He's the Lamb. Because He died for me. He's my Lamb. He's my priest Lamb. He's my King Lamb. Lamb, lamb, lamb. I'll just close with this. Youth instructor, February 10th, 1898. Sir Richard White said, the reason we sin is because we don't see Jesus. You can watch the beast all you want. You can get all the information on the beast, but that's not going to keep you from sinning. It'll make you more intelligent about last day events, but it won't keep you from sinning. we got to stop sinning. And then we receive the latter rain. And the only way to stop sinning is to have more of... That's it, friends. More of Jesus every day. More and more and more. And the more you have of Him, the more you will love Him. The more you have of Him, the more you're going to want of Him. The better you will know Him. And even if you haven't had a devotional life for X amount of years or months... 
we could start new. Every day's new. Doesn't matter what we've done in the past. God will forgive us. It's all a clean sheet. You just go forward in faith and just add to your faith every day something Jesus said, something Jesus did, and become more like Him, and you'll prepare yourself to have that seal of God on your forehead and receive the latter rain, receive that fourth angel, and we get to what? We get to go home. It's time. Okay? Before we have our closing prayer, we have a closing hymn. Is there an announcement I need to make? Uh, just a reminder on the music committee afterwards and these books. And did everybody get a flyer? One of these. Sir, you... <laughs> There's yours. And our closing hymn is number 623, I Will Follow Thee. Number 623. Praise God.
me by thy grace I follow thee let us pray our fathers we take a moment to ponder the wonders of your creation and how you put us in a perfect spot where there's not only just life, but life more abundant. Oh, Father, how you created Adam and Eve perfect, designed to live forever. But forgive us, Father, for our sins. But we thank you so much for a Savior. Thank you, Father, for the blood of Jesus. Help us to apply that blood to our lives, that our sins are not only forgiven, but that we are set free, free to serve, free to grow. And Father, if the rest of the world walked away from you, it was just us standing, our choice is not to leave you, but to take a stand realizing that we have nothing without you, that you are our salvation, you are our joy, You are everything to us. And so thank you, Father, for this gift of life. Thank you for the promise of eternal life. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the lovely angels. Thank you for this church and for one another. Thank you for these sacred hours. In this we all pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. everybody. Song leaders, if we can meet in the room at the back for a few minutes, the sooner we meet, the sooner we can be done.